I was uncharacteristically nervous this morning. When I went to bed last night thinking about this message, I didn't, I didn't feel great about it. And I woke up this morning and I was, all I could describe it was a nervous stomach. And it's so long since I actually felt those kind of nerves, I wasn't completely sure what was going on. And I said to Debbie, I, I'm feeling nervous this morning. She goes, that's not like you. And I said, I know. This is what she said. She said, are you, are you nervous because you, 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 you're worried that you're not going to be able to hit it out of the park like you did last week? Wow. Uh, no, that wasn't the thought that crossed my mind, actually. Um, and then I started thinking. You know, she, she kind of got into my head a little bit. I'm thinking, why, why am I nervous? Am I nervous because Colette Layden is here? I mean, she's a Bible scholar, and I, and I have to do this in front of a Bible scholar. No, I'm pretty comfortable with Colette. Am I nervous because my baby sister is here? Trust me, that's not the reason I'm nervous. I didn't actually know what was going wrong inside of me, and I was really nervous, like old style, the old Peter Boyer nervous, until I was shaving, and I realized I was nervous because I actually didn't have the real reason why you needed to listen to me, which is interesting because the title of the message, and this is the seventh message in the series, started by our other two pastors uh, from First Peter, and it's about... The living hope that we have gives us a reason. And this message today is the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ gives us the reason for self-denial. And I realized only when I was shaving this morning why you are going to be challenged to listen to me. And see here, it went like this. As I was shaving, I got rid of all the stuff that was kind of, you know, new growth in the last week since I was here last Sunday because during the week I don't shave in the summertime. And I nicked the, the part of this little fuzzy thing here. I nicked it too much in this side. And I looked in the mirror and I realized, oh, now I've got to even up the other side. <laughs> and then I started to even up the other side and I went just a little too far. Now, I could have lived with it. And, and you've seen the way I come to church. I come dressed like this. You know that I don't actually put that much stock in how I look. But it was going to look just too weird to have the beard that skewed. And I realized how important reciprocity is to all of us. And, and instantly, my nervousness went away because reciprocity is everything to all of us. Whether you're the most mature Christian that you can possibly be, there still is this thing inside of you that says things have got to balance, things have got to be even. And it wasn't until this goofy little business about shaving my beard that I realized that's why you're going to struggle with this. Because today's message, quite honestly, is a bit prickly. It's, a, it's, a, it's meddling. I'm, I'm going to get into your head, but I really want to get into your heart. Because this is a message about the reason why we need to consider self-denial in our lives. And that's not something that any of us want to do. Reciprocity, where does it come from? Um, I, because this is, this is kind of late-breaking thinking for me this morning, I'm just kind of spitballing here. As far as I understand, as far as I know, the, the, probably the best, most concrete source, significant source for this concept goes way back to the Code of Hammurabi, which is like almost 2,000 years before Jesus. And the, the Code of Hammurabi has like two to 300 of these codified laws about how people are to behave towards one another. But basically, the main message that comes out of that is you cannot do anything bad to somebody else more than they've already done bad to you. Now you think, wow, that's kind of the, the baseline of society. That's pretty, pretty low-minded. In other words, I can hurt you, but I can't hurt you any more than you've already hurt me. 
Well, we know that 2,000 years later, Jesus came along and he turned the world upside down by saying, no, you know, there's a better way. But the fact is, all of us have that, that truth resonating in our heart. Debbie and I see this when we're counseling individuals, coaching people, couples, this idea of reciprocity, 50-50. And it's not just so much about the bad things, it's also the good things. You know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. Jesus talked about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was the old way. That's what it was said. And he says, I have, I have a better way for you. And he talked about, you know, once someone smacks you, you turn the other cheek. He talks about going the extra mile. The message of Jesus, the message of the cross, is about defeating within us the concept of reciprocity. I actually, I actually had a quote that I wanted, to, I wanted to give you this morning. The strongest person is not the one who was able to do something. It is the one who is able to not do what he has the power to do. This self-denial, which is really what that's about, is the only way really to usher God's kingdom into our life. Now, before you got here, I mean, the worship team, the, the booth people, we get here all pretty early just to set everything up. And I was bantering back with the, with the guys in the booth, and apparently I said something that really upset Dale. Because he, he said, you know, I would, have expected that, I would have expected that from BJ. Peter, I wouldn't have expected that from you. And he said it a couple of times. He was quite shocked. Apparently, I really dissed him somehow. So, Dale, the strongest person is not the one who was able to do something. It's the one who was able to not do what he has the power to do. So, please keep my slides going. Please. Be the stronger person. <laughs> it's not about you. These are the opening words to probably one of the best-selling books of all time. Go back 10 years, and for two years in a row, the top-selling book on planet Earth was a book called Purpose Driven Life, written by a pastor in California who dressed way worse than I do, who, who never wore shoes, he had lame jokes, but he wrote one of the most, one of the most powerful books, uh, certainly one of the best-selling books of all time. And it opens with, if you turn to page one, it opens with the words, it's not about you. This is not just a countercultural message for us today. This has been a countercultural message since the beginning of human beings. This idea that it's not about you and that there's more to life than you. And I've learned myself over the years that I am, there's a limit to how much I can be fascinated by myself. I am not endlessly interested in myself. There is a limit to how interesting I am. Not to you, but to myself. And this is true for all of us. And, and I think ultimately this is why most people, when they get to a point of despondency, discouragement, uh, something inside of them is not working well, anxiety, it's because they've started to look inward too much, maybe to the point where they're living completely for themselves. And I'm, I'm talking as if it's about other people out there, and I'm going to very quickly change the language to talking about you, because I know that this is something that all of us struggle with, this idea that we have to live our lives not just for ourselves. And the Christian life and ushering in the Christian life in our lives is really about turning over control, but mostly turning over interest, turning over interest in ourselves to interest in others and interest in God. And when you, when you leave here today, I want you to actually look at what the mission statement of our church is. As you're walking out the door, just those doors before you hit the parking lot, just look up. This is about, this is about God. This is about others. This is about serving the world. None of those words are about yourself. It doesn't mean you don't do anything for yourself. It doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. You don't pay attention to yourself. It just means that we don't remind you of that because you are already hardwired to do that. 
There's no fear that you're not going to take care of yourself because that's your first go-to. There's no worry that you're not going to do the things necessary to keep you going because that's your first go-to. Okay, that was just my way of explaining why I was nervous this morning and I'm not nervous anymore. The passage that we have today, as I said, this is the seventh message in the series of nine on 1 Peter. The passage is uh, from, from chapters three and into chapter four. And, and I've, I'm going to cross over with a little bit of the things that I talked about last week. And I understand last week's message is now up online. If you need to refer back to it, you can listen to it. Uh, just ignore the fact that I actually opened with a, a, a blunder. Apparently, I said something stupid. Um, thanks, DJ, for reminding me of that just before I got up this morning. I appreciate that. Starting in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered for, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And quite simply, I want to put forward three motivations. Okay, the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ is our reason for self-denial, but I want to give you specifically three motivations to drive that. The first one is that Jesus denied himself. He's the model. We're here in a Christian church, Sunday morning, worshiping God, singing songs, listening to God's word because of the relationship that we either have with Jesus or because of the curiosity that we're, we're listening about all of this and has, curiosity has brought us here to think about, to talk about, to hear about Jesus. And so let me just set the stage right now. The best motivation that we have for self-denial is because he led the way. He came from heaven. He had everything. He came down from heaven to earth. He went from more to less, and he did all of that for us, and ultimately to the point where he was put to death. And that passage is very, very clear. We continue on, verse 19. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And I spoke about this last week, how Jesus, when he died, actually went and preached to the dead. And it's kind of a weird concept, and I encourage you to look that passage up in chapters 3 and 4 of 1 Peter. Um, and if you want to listen to last week's message, because I'm not spending any more time on that. But that's kind of a weird thing. He went and preached to the dead because the gospel was to be preached to every human being who'd ever lived, past, present, and future. And so he did that in verse 20, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And here's where I'm going to get into the first kind of sub-prickly point. I want to talk just for a second about this issue of baptism because of all the things within Christian teachings and Christian doctrine that should be the easiest, this has been one of the things that has created the greatest controversy. And it's quite silly, actually, when you look at this particular passage because for me, this passage is the most definitive passage in the entire Bible on the importance of baptism, as long as we don't take it too far, but make sure we take it far enough. He says this water, the, the, flo the flood of Noah, that water, he said this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. I'm going to apologize on behalf of all of Christendom right now because we have screwed this up. This is really a simple truth in the scriptures. It doesn't get any simpler than this, but we have screwed this up. I'm not going to get into who said what, who did what to who, and, and I, don't, I don't care. 
within the church here, from you sitting here. You've probably all been raised or taught who knows what on this subject. But let me just bring our eyes and our hearts and our minds to bear on these words here. Baptism saves you. Now, I'm going to get somebody to close the doors. Don't run out yet if you didn't like those words because there's more words I I want you to hear that you're not going to like either, so I didn't want you to miss those, but don't get turned off by this one. (laughs) Baptism does save us, and the writer here says it twice. He says that water, the flood waters from Noah, it symbolizes baptism, that saves you now also. Now, he he knows that he's going to have to explain this, and he does, I think, a masterful job of explaining this. First of all, it doesn't save you because it washes dirt from your body. It saves you because of the pledge of your conscience towards God. And then, just the way Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, when he's, in chapter two he says we're saved by grace through faith. And, and don't even start bragging about your faith because even that is a gift from God, so don't take it too far. There is something that we have to do. There is a response from us. God's grace requires a response from us. He has a free gift for us. We still have to reach out our hand and take that free gift. That is the response. Peter here says that we are saved by baptism. Not because of the way the water washes your body, but because of your pledge of a good conscience toward God. Another translation says because of an appeal to God for a good conscience. And that probably is is an even better translation. And what that passage is basically saying is don't get all high and mighty and don't get cocky. This isn't anything you're doing, but this is a necessary step. And then he puts the nice little bow at the package. He says, it saves you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, for years, I actually thought that this little passage was like a parenthesis. It was an aside. Peter was talking, uh, writing this very clear message. And we go on in chapter 4 to talk about the importance of loving each other and how we're living for each other and why we need to deny ourselves for the sake of each other. But then he shoves in this little thing about baptism. like, what the heck does this have to do with anything? I see this differently now. I now see this as a very important part of what he's trying to say because before a person becomes a Christian, you have to have a relationship. It doesn't just simply start by, okay, God, I'm going to give my life to you. Great. Let's have a relationship. And you start to develop a relationship. God says there's a point where he wants you to formally declare that relationship. Now, this is... This is where the prickly part comes because you can start getting too much into your own head and saying, well, then it's really about what we do. No, 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 it's just a necessary part. Necessary but not sufficient. And so let me just give you kind of the polar opposites here. Two, two, what I'm going to call two watered-down versions, pun totally intended, two watered-down versions of, of baptism. One says, you know what? You were saved by baptism. That's it. You just got to get done. Got to get you in the water, get you dunked, you're done. Well, that kind of thinking led the church hundreds and hundreds of years ago to saying, well, then maybe we should be, let's baptize people the moment they're born. Let's baptize babies. The problem with that is that actually sets aside what he goes on to say, that it's about the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And it's pretty hard for a baby to do that. And so we have the idea, well, where maybe parents can make pledges on behalf of kids, but nowhere do we see in the entire Bible where you can actually make a pledge, a a promise, a commitment on behalf of somebody else. This is the personal side. We have to make that. The other end of the spectrum is that, no, no, we're saved by faith through the grace of God. Nothing we can do. So let's not, let's not say that baptism saves us because that's going to send the wrong message. 
Baptism is really just an, an outward sign of an inward change or an outward sign of an, of an inner grace. That's like a bumper sticker slogan that just doesn't actually reflect the words here because he says it quite clearly. We are saved by baptism. And so you're saying, well, how do you wrestle with these two things? These are, these are two kind of competing tensions in my brain. Yes. Yes, they are. Well, Peter, can you, can you take that tension away? You, can, you need to relieve that tension so I don't have this struggle. No. No, I'm not going to do that. Because this is actually the way Jesus taught. The ancient Greeks had this, th- this, this term for this. They called it the dialectic, where you have these two opposite things that can't possibly be true at the same time, but they somehow actually are necessary for the whole thing. You've got thesis, antithesis, and hopefully together, synthesis. And this is what we need to do, is we need to be able to take challenging messages like this and to be able to synthesize those truths. We are saved by baptism. Just don't think it's anything that you do. Because <laughs> ultimately, we're saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done for us, he came and suffered for us. So what does that have to do with all of this passage that, that Peter's talking about? I think it's quite simply this. We establish a relationship with God. We, we ple- plead this this, this case before him, we tell him that we, how far we've missed the mark. We establish a relationship. Then we formalize that. Well, up to that point, it's really not about denying ourselves. There's a couple of things we're doing before that. And if any of you want to get into what I'm about to say next more, I actually write a personal blog every week. And this coming month, well, the month of August, I'm actually writing a, about kind of action attitudes that we need to have to be effective in our life. First thing we have to do is we have to surrender. We have to, that's the emotional thing. We have to stop fighting. Stop fighting whatever it is that we're fighting. Turn away from some of the things that, that are kind of attracting us. We also have to submit. That's kind of a mental thing. We have to, we have to turn more towards God and say, you know what, it's, it's, it's about you and I want to commit to those things. But it isn't actually until we have his power within us to help us to change from the inside out, which happens according to Acts 2.38 at the time of baptism, Again, nothing that we do, but this is God's plan. We formalize it. He gives us the ability to change from the inside out. I met Debbie. Had a bit of a fun first date. I decided on that first date I was going to marry her because she ate beef. <laughs> that was at a time when most women were wanting to you know, do the, the veggie thing and uh, don't eat, that kind of stuff, and I asked her where she wanted to go for our first date, and she said to the keg. And then she ordered prime rib. I knew I was in love at that moment. <laughs> well, we established a relationship very quickly for us, but very quickly I realized I needed to stop, stop fighting with everything that was going on. I just needed to commit totally to her, but we didn't actually formalize that until we were married. Now, I look back right now. That marriage day was actually very, very important. It was essential. Has it had anything to do with the strength of my marriage? Almost not. That's been the ongoing relationship. And the more and more and the longer we're married, the more real I realize that the strength of our marriage is getting better and better and better, the more each of us is choosing to let, live more for the other. And it gets better and it gets happier. It's just hard to make the case. It's hard to sell that point. Listen, just live for your spouse completely, 100% for your spouse. Life's going to be amazing. Yeah, Peter, you're going to need to do better than that. <laughs> I'm not buying it, uh, let me come to those words more in a second. So I think here the point that he's making is that this issue about baptism is a really good place 
to start to realize that it's not about you. And you're making this formal declaration, not just to, to, to yourself and to God, but to everybody else. It's not about me. And I really want everyone to know it's not about me. It's about others. It's about God. Let's go into chapter 4. Oh, before we even get there, let me just, I guess, give the second motivation. It helps us to grow. Reason for self-denial is it helps us to grow. There's actually a benefit. While raising our children, there would be times when my, my son would, would come to me and he'd want something, and I would say, no, doing without builds character. Yeah, he didn't buy that either. <laughs> yeah. Somehow, that wisdom was just lost in him. He didn't really appreciate that. And sometime around the age of 14 or 15, you know, I had been using that line for so long, it was kind of a mantra for me, a bit of a slogan. So one day he came to me and he wanted something. I said, no, doing without builds character. I got ambushed. He was waiting for me. He said, in case you haven't noticed, Dad, I'm a character. <laughs> so I had to find a new slogan. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about the, 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 the benefit of self-denial for ourselves. Chapter 4 Peter writes, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, again, still working with the motivation that he's the model, uh, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. He gets personal. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then it goes on to talk about how Jesus preached to the dead. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert of sober, and of sober mind so that you may pray. Okay, I didn't actually make the case here. My point was there's growth. And none of the words I just read actually make that point. And I think there's a reason for that. If you actually let that be your motivation, I'm going, to, I'm going to deny myself for the sake of growth, personal growth. It's good for me. Then you're actually motivated by self-interest, which is actually at the opposite end of the spectrum of self-denial. So that can never be the motivation. It will only and always be a byproduct. It will only and always be a byproduct. Now, you can kind of head fake yourself and maybe think you're faking God. Well, I'm going to not do it for that reason, but quietly go, you know, but I'm, I know the end of this. I'm going to grow. I'm going to let you balance that tension in your own mind, in your own heart. You have to do that. Because I don't think it's wrong for us to know that that's a, that's a motivation. If I deny myself for the sake of God and others, I'm going to benefit. I'm going to grow. I'm going to become a better person. The agricultural example that immediately comes to mind, and I'm not a, I don't have a green thumb. I can't grow anything. But the example that comes to mind is that if you want, if you want something like grass or some plants to, to, to grow deeper roots... Sometimes the way to do that is to actually withhold water. Because as long as the water is freely supplied, the, the roots are shallow, they, just, they remain near the surface because that's where the water is. It's only when they're denied that water that they go searching, and many times deeper. They go deeper looking for the water that's not available, readily available there. So we know that if we deny ourselves, if we do without, there can be a value for us. And sometimes growth can happen through that. You just have to be very careful that that's your motivation. You really have to be cautious because then it's really about self-interest. Maybe at some point it could become to the point where it's, it's like having a martyr complex. There's really no reward in there other than the reward for yourself. So you have to be very careful how you manage that. 
I guess then maybe it really only leaves two. If, I, if I've just taken that one off, I said I had three motivations. Maybe I can't even count that second one. Then here's the third one, and here's where I want to spend the rest of my time. It enables us to, expend, to extend His grace, God's grace, to other people. Here are the words. And I, want, I just want to read these. I want to read these through to the end of the text, and then I want to talk about for a minute. He says, Above all, Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, Greg talked about love a few weeks ago. He's going to talk about suffering next week. So I'm I'm trying to stay away from those topics, but I have to talk about love a little bit. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, Dale, I'm going to ask you to go back to verse 8 where it says, above all, love each other. Back three or four slides. That's it. By show of hands, how many think you know the, where, where to find the love chapter in the New Testament, by show of hands. By show of hands, how many would put your hand up if you knew I wasn't actually going to ask you to say what it is? <laughs> so those of you who are thinking, 1 Corinthians 13, very good, did a good job. It's the passage that's often read at weddings, and, and I want to I come, come into the marriage relationship here because the, the relationship that we have with God, with Jesus, is, is probably closest to a marriage relationship. So for those of you who are not married, Bear with me. Try to, try to extend this in your minds. For those of you who are married, whether your marriage is amazing or whether you're really, really struggling, kind of think about this and listen to this. But in 1 Corinthians 13, specifically verse 7, the Apostle Paul says that love is, and he says there's, he says there's four things. Love always protects, love always trusts, love always hopes, and love always perseveres. Love always protects, love always trusts, Love always hopes, and love always perseveres. So take a second and think about that. Love always protects. In a marriage situation, do you always have the best interest of your spouse in mind? Will you do anything and everything within your power to keep him or her safe from physical harm? Sure. I'll take a bullet for my wife. Then why have I actually done some things that have hurt her Emotionally, why do you do things that hurt your spouse emotionally? That's not protection. Self-denial is about not you. It's about the other person. In the case of a marriage, it's about your spouse. Self-denial means it's all about her. It's all about him. Everything within my power I'm going to do to protect her from physical harm, from emotional harm, from mental harm. The the stories, make sure I don't kind of set up the wrong stories in her head that she's going to be telling herself over and over and over again. Spiritually, I have to make sure she doesn't come to any spiritual harm. Social harm, what can I do to protect my spouse from social harm? So I'm not even sure how to to think about some of these things. I'm going to help you in a second. Um, Love always trusts. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love believes that the other person has your best interest at heart. Love makes yourself vulnerable. 
vulnerability. Here's vulnerability. Trust. Trust and vulnerability, kind of they're interchangeable. Here's what that really means. I'm going to pretend that she's my spouse just for a second. I want you to open your hands. Here's my heart. Now, please don't squish it. (laughs) That's it. That's what trust is. That's what vulnerability is. Here's my heart. Please don't squish it. But it only works when you take your hands off. Do you trust that person? Unconditionally. Just don't hurt me. You say, well, that's a risk. Yeah, that's why it's called trust. There's a risk involved. But according to social science data, which I love, social science data tells us that the only way that you can develop the most intimate possible relationship with another human being is to trust them. Put your, put your heart in their hands and say, please don't squish it. And then hands off. Do you do that? You say, well, I, that, that's hard. Yes, it is. But remember, self-denial is hard. But it is the way of Christ. It's the only way to usher the kingdom of God into your life. I told you it was going to be kind of a prickly message. Kind of make you squirm a little bit. Because you're saying, wait a second. But hold your butt because i got two more. Love always hopes. In other words, love looks forward to a better future. Love says it's going to get better. But here's how love can do that. As opposed to the the, the trust woman that says, hands off. Uh, You know what? Just don't squish my heart. When love always hopes, this becomes very intentional for yourself. This is something you do. I can choose to see a better future. And if I can choose to see a better future, then by choice, which is what love is, it's a choice, it's an action, it's not a feeling. By choice, I can help to make that future better for me and my spouse. And of course, this extends to other relationships, but this is the easiest one to talk about. By choice, I can make that future better. Love always hopes. It's me that's going to make her future better <clears throat> if it's within my power. And according to another passage of Scripture, I have that power because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And the last one, this is the one that I'm going to use the vernacular here because I really need you to get my sense of emotion. We suck at this. Love always perseveres. Last few days on Thursday and Friday, a few of us attended the Willow Creek Leadership Summit, two-day event for, for leaders, and uh, one of the, the first presentations talked about one of the key ingredients, one of the key characteristics, qualities, uh, attitudes, aptitudes, whatever you want to call it, of a leader is a leader has grit. A leader has that ability to just, you know, stick to itiveness, just hang in there no matter what, just persevere. Love always perseveres. Love never says quits. Love never sees an end and says, I can't do anymore. Love can always do more because it's a choice. And this is the choice that we have been given the power to execute in our lives because we can do all things through him who gives me strength. Are you seeing how this plays out in your life? What you don't necessarily see in the New Testament as much as the Old, you see this in the book of Proverbs. In the New Testament, you see it a little bit, but the social science data now has filled in that gap and basically says, if you do these things, you are going to feel so incredible inside, so fulfilled, not if you just do it for the sake of doing it so you feel better, because that's self-interest, that's not self-denial, and you will have your reward. I'm talking about the living hope that we have. Peter talks about in chapter 1. The living hope that comes from 
having faith in the resurrected Christ. And that hope empowers me to do all the things that I'm just reading here in chapters 3 and 4. I'm supposed to use whatever gifts I have to serve others. I'm supposed to, to, to minister to all of you. According to that, minister God's grace in its various forms, and you all come in different forms, and you have different gifts and abilities and skills and aptitudes, talents that you can use to serve other people because it's not about you. And I so much want to tell you, you know what, if you, if you can't really buy this, I want to tell you just try it because you're going to be the beneficiary. Problem is, as soon as I start to get that head into your head, you're going to start doing it for that reason, and then you're defeating the purpose, and it'll never actually work out. Okay, everything that I talked about that was going to benefit you, just forget everything I said about that. Okay. See, this is part of the message. And the challenge of learning to balance that in our lives so that it isn't about us. When it comes to marriages, one of the things that Debbie and I have known, know, and we've, we're doing a lot of work with couples, there's this idea that's in way too many marriages. I'm talking Christian marriages. And by Christian marriages, what I'm really meaning is two people who, who are married who are supposed to know better. Way, way too many marriages have this 50-50 thing going. You do this and I'll do this. And we're, we're hearing some, honestly, horror stories. 50-50, you do this and I'll do this. This is reciprocal. Yep, you're complying to the code of Hammurabi. 3,754 years ago. At a, at a job, way to go. It's not the way of Christ. Marriage is not 50-50. And here's one of those weird things. There's two perspectives. If I'm looking at your marriage, I'm going to know that your marriage has the greatest hope of reaching the epitome of marriages if when I look, what I'm seeing is 100-100. I'm saying, well, that sounds like one of those coaches, you know, give 110%. Way to go, coach. Thanks, coach. You can only get 100. Hmm. Not in Christ. Because the math doesn't add up. 100-100. That's from my perspective, looking at your marriage. If you're in your own marriage, looking at your own marriage, and here's the final prickly point, and this one's a hard one to swallow, but it's the only thing that actually makes sense in the kingdom of God. It's the only thing that will allow you to usher the kingdom of God into your, not just your life, but your marriage, your relationships is if you're sitting there looking at your spouse, Peter says 100 to 100. No, he said it's 100 to 100 if he's looking in at you. If you're looking at your spouse, it's 0, 100. 0, 100. I have to do everything in my power. I have to give 100% to you without expecting one single thing in return. Really? Really? Because probably in your marriage vows somewhere, unless you modified this out early because you could see this train going off the track, unless you took out the words for better or for worse. And I can tell you right now after being married 30 some odd years, most people don't have the foggiest idea what worse could even look like. No idea. It's 100-0. Can I ask us to just imagine for a second that we, if, if, if our marriages are perfect that way, that we can extend that kind of thinking into our lives as we look, look towards other people. This is the way Jesus lived with everybody. 
Zero, I expect nothing from you. 100, you deserve everything from me. Deserve? Kind of a strong word. I'm going to go back to that last verse. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. You cannot do this on your own. If you're saying, you know, well, that, that sounds great, Peter, but yeah, good luck trying to get anybody to execute that in their life. Yeah, you can. You just can't do it by yourself. You have to have the strength of God. So that, and here's the ultimate motivation, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to transition now. We're, we're going we're gonna to move into a time of, of communion. Um, I'm going to speak a few words, and then Lisa's going to play a song for us. This is the, the practice of our congregation that we, we share the Lord's Supper every week. We take the loaf, we take the cup, uh, we pray for it, we pray about it, and then uh, for those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus, we each take one of those and we take that together. So after I speak for a second, after she plays, the, the, they're going to be passed to you. If you have a relationship with Jesus, please take a piece of bread, a piece of cracker and some juice and just hold on to it. If you don't have a relationship with him yet, this is a spectacular time for you to think about some of the things I just, I just discussed about what it means to live a life that is not about me. Except for you right now, if you don't have a relationship with him, you can't possibly identify with that because he's not living inside of you to help you to see that way. What you can do, though, is you can start to develop that relationship. So take this as a time of reflection. So let's look at what Jesus did. <clears throat> he had everything. He was in heaven. There's a host of passages that talk about that Jesus, the man, was God in the flesh. He left heaven, he came to earth, he lived as a man for a few years, he showed us what he expected. He didn't just come here to scold us. He came to say, here's what I had in mind all along, here's how to do it, and he took us by the hand and showed us. And at the end of all of it, before we even got a fraction of it, he says, I, I, need, I need to go because you need to have the, the power that I'm talking about living inside of you, just like he, the Father, is living inside of me right now, helping me to do all the things that you're seeing, I need to go. And he did that by dying for us on the cross. Each and every week, we come, we sing songs, we, we, we look at God's word, we have fellowship together, we have some coffee. But one of the things that we make sure we do every week is we take this time, just in the middle of it all, to clear away the clutter, and we just want to remember, with nothing else, this is not a time for you, to, if you're a Christian, to reflect on your problems. This is not a time for you to ask God for forgiveness even, really, this is simply a time for you to say, thank you, Lord, for what you did for me because I am so far from living the life that you want. I want to get better, but right now I just want to thank you for showing me better.